the lengths that people will go to to destroy the lives of somebody that they've never met is remarkable. And we have now pumped competition so profoundly into every vein of our existence that the whole life now feels a little bit like the Hunger Games. Memory is incredibly important in the novel. You could argue that all, all novels are about memory in some way. I'm Helen Bagnall. And I'm Juliet Russell. So in this podcast, we're going to be looking at three of our shortlisted speakers for the Transmission Prize 2015. We're going to be taking a look at Professor Charles Ferniehow, Margaret Heffernan and Jamie Bartlett. So I saw the Nobel laureate James Watson at Hay Festival a couple of years ago mm-hmm. in conversation with Ian McEwan, the novelist. And James was forcefully suggesting to Ian that if novelists want to make themselves relevant, they should get their heads around the big subjects of science, and that's what they should write novels about. (laughs) How did he take that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think he thought James was entitled to his opinion. I think he'd written a pretty successful book um, about a scientific subject, Solar. But all of this is pretty relevant to our next shortlisted speaker, Professor Charles Ferniehow. Um, because he spends half his time as a professor of neuroscience at Durham University and half his time as a novelist. And he's just consulted on Jez Butterworth's latest play, um, The River. Mm -hmm. He's also written uh, Pieces of Light, um, published by Profile Books, and Box of Birds from Unbound. One's non-fiction, one's fiction. And here he is on the nature of memory. And ultimately, memory is about narrative. You know, Mm -hmm. our memories are the stories we tell ourselves about the past and they are shaped by who we are and who we were then and who we are now and what we believe now and want now and so on so a narrative form seemed to make perfect sense for that particular topic so he's kind of living james watson's dream um it's as if he's realized the discoveries that we're making in science are so wild and so big that we do need novelists to help us understand and make sense of the repercussions of the things that are happening in science Mm -hmm. and who is best to do that um, than a novelist who understands the science. I don't know what you make of that. Well, I remember when we asked scientist Michael Brooks the same question, he said that novelists, understandably, didn't have the specialist knowledge to tackle such big ideas in fiction. So having a scientist writing a novel is definitely one way of advancing the genre. So my interest here really stemmed from thinking a lot about this new knowledge that we have about the brain and how it underpins our mental processes and our emotions and so on and asking does that really change anything does that change the way we understand ourselves as as human beings because arguably in the past huge discoveries or huge changes in thought particularly darwinism and freudianism really did influence the way people wrote about their experience and if we see writers as kind of barometers of more general understanding of ourselves arguably writers were just picking up the first signs of a cultural change in how we 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 view ourselves and i think you can see that happening with the influence of darwin with the influence of freud Mm -hmm. and so on so i'm really asking the same question about neuroscience does knowing all this stuff about the brain change the way we think about our experience So I thought, what if you took somebody who's steeped in this stuff? What if you took a neuroscientist who really thought about her own experience and mental processes and memories and so on in terms of neural processes? Does that change how she experiences what's going on around her? I mean, Charles's work on memory is incredible, but from our perspective of looking at the Salon London audience, it does seem that our audience is now ready to really engage with the subject of memory. 
And I think that's partly because of the advancement in scanning brains and neuroscientists, and that's a subject that our audience really engages with. And there is something about salons. I think they're a really good way of gauging what subjects people are interested in, almost as if the research is received at one level, but it takes time to bed in at an audience level. I think that's right. And it takes time for big ideas to become established. And we can see when we're working with speakers many times over a course of a year, when ideas just suddenly fly with mm -hmm. audience after audience. Um, and I think this idea is very difficult. It's central to Charles's work that memories aren't our own, that, that yeah. we change them every time we access them. Because, you know, they're very tied up into the idea of ourselves. And it's very hard to let go of that um he did charles did this trick at latitude that i'm going to try on you now to see if it works and you can try if you're listening to this too <laughs> so i'm going to give you um some words and i want you to remember them for a bit okay so bed sheets duvet night dream moon rest drift pillow got okay. them yeah okay, okay. So, so just remember them and we'll, so. we'll okay. come back don't worry too much okay um and this is you know it's with people like charles we're really really glad that we're not a traditional book prize because we're able to take something that was published in 2013 that is brilliant mm -hmm. and get it in front of an audience that is really starting to engage with that subject now I think people are very interested in the way memories are formed. There's an incredible chapter in the book where um, Charles talks about getting his children to remember his father who they'd never met. And it was so beautifully written, it had me in tears, and I'm hard as nails. <laughs> um, it's salon gold because it's so relatable to people. Everyone has their memories. Um, we all have early memories, and they're precious to us. But it's not just that, that he's, um, it's not just because of his work on memory that he's on this list. He's on the list because of his ambition. He's clearly a lover, a lover of literature, and much like we loved Olivia Lang's trip to Echo Spring or Eloberto's A Novel Cure, we need people who can span fiction and non-fiction. It's great to have a book that makes literature work in a deeper way. So it's really for the whole package that Charles is on our list. Um, his whole work is ambitious, and we love ambition. Mm -hmm. So really, writing this book was about trying to find a way in which people could have a new relationship with their memories, understand the status of them slightly differently, see them as interesting, telling stories about their own selves and their own pasts, rather than literal representations of the facts. So Helen, what about the experiment? I'd like to know how I did on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so did I say duvet? Yeah. Did I say sleep? Mm, oh, yeah. Did I say rest? Yeah. No, I didn't say sleep. Ah, uh, uh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Memory is unreliable. What can I tell you? Retail. I knew that though. <laughs> <laughs> so our next speaker, Margaret Heffernan, is very interesting in that what she writes actually challenges the culture of business. She wowed us with willful blindness and then the whole phone hacking thing went wild. So we were really keen to have her back for a bigger prize. Didn't she say, didn't she take one look at an audience and say that it was a Mac-using, non-newspaper reading, European weekending kind of a crowd? Well, she did a kind of mini-survey on us, didn't she? And that was what resulted, but we probably could have told her by looking at them. <laughs> but a good crowd, a very discerning salon crowd, I have to say. And she did do that, and she was right. And I think now she's saying that our life has become like a real-time version of the Hunger Games, that competition has infiltrated every element of our life so much. So our focus on beating everyone is to our detriment. 
And what's absolutely extraordinary about this book is it seems like a harmless tale of pro-collaboration, which is something that I would argue that the arts community has been doing for a long time. But actually, this book is an out-and-out -out attack on capitalism. And this is from someone who knows the institutions that she's writing about from the inside, and she has the knowledge and authority to be able to say this. And for me, it's a very outdated way of working, and that's what I like about what she challenges, is really using a very old model for a changing world. And she talks about the focus of competition in schools, leading to an obsession with passing exams at any cost, and the damage this does to our love of learning, or even our ability to learn. Yeah, and I love that she writes that this could be quite damaging to the um, future workforce's prospects. Because although we know many jobs will be replaced by computers, we don't know the kind of jobs we're going to need to do ourselves. But what we will need to be able to do is maintain a love of learning so that we can adapt to whatever is needed to be done from us. But this is being bred out by too much competition. Yeah, and even in sport, where you think an obsession with winning would be an advantage... But it seems that by age 12, 80% of kids have opted out of sport because they think if they can't win, what's the point? And, you know, that has a massive impact on the health of future generations. And actually, it's at work where you can see where competition can actually go against the best interests of the company. And let's hear this from Margaret herself. They know they're working in environments where people are withholding information from each other because information is power. They know that they're working in environments where if you're not the super toughest and the loudest and the pushiest, you'll fail. They know that and they suddenly realize that it doesn't work. It doesn't produce highly creative, energized people. It creates murder and mayhem. But luckily she's found answers. And here are some of the methods that leading companies are using to ensure they're not undermined by competition. So I visited this amazing company in California where there are no job titles. Nobody has power over anybody. And it is the most efficient and the most, uh, most successful company in its category. I visited a company in Scotland, W.L. Gore, where actually the only way you have any power at all is if you call a meeting and people want to turn up. <laughs> and if they don't want to turn up, it's because you're one of those super chickens and you don't last very long because people <laughs> want to work with people they want to work with. And you can look at other, you know, I've studied other companies like Arab, where the whole point is that information is there to be shared because that's how everybody grows, and when everybody grows, the firm does better. And let's hear from Margaret, summing up in her own words. Social capital are the bonds between people. They're the stuff that make life worth living. They're the basis of trust and reciprocity, of generosity and support. Social capital is what makes societies resilient, it what makes them safe, and it's what makes them pleasant to live in. If you build your social capital by giving to people generously, helping anybody you can whenever you can, giving credit generously and magnanimously, you discover that all this giving doesn't cost you a thing. What it builds is social capital, and that is wealth. Thank you very much. So next we've got uh, Jamie Bartlett, and he's on the shortlist for his work in exploring the darker elements of the internet in his book, The Dark Net. Um, 
one of the things I love about the transmission prize is when you uh, spend so much time with the speakers we do over the course of the year and you hear the talk many times you get to kind of get an understanding of what it is that motivates them because the same phrases crop up and what are the phrases that keep coming up I think that Jamie wrote this book because he really wanted to understand how individuals act if they are truly free and truly anonymous. He wanted to understand um, how human nature acts when it's given those conditions. He's a director at the think tank Demos and his job is to look at um, the way social media um, is used and so you can see how his job led him to writing this book and it's excellent. And it's also it's with a changing technology, it's not something we've really got to grips with, so it's really groundbreaking work. And he gets quite involved in it as well, doesn't he? He does, you know, and that's why he's just a brilliant writer. He gets out there and he spends time with these people. He doesn't speculate. You know, he spent time with neo-Nazis, crypto-anarchists, cam girls, pro-suicide and pro-anorexia communities and trolls. And what he comes out of it with is actually moral ambiguity. Um, no one knows how we're going to use the darknet in the future, but he's gone in and seen how it's used now mm -hmm. and is able to talk about it so that we can draw our own conclusions. But it was the politics behind Bitcoin um, that was the most surprising um, in the book. Because it sounds quite appealing. It in... does sound appealing. And I think last year when we were out doing the festivals, I think you could actually buy drinks in Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, it does really have this sort of crazy-ass coolness about it. But when you really drill down into the thinking about it, it's a bit too West Coast libertarian for me. But let's hear from Jamie. That's the... This is a, such an influential strand of thinking among a lot of internet zealots, along a, a, among a lot of original internet programmers, the people that are so influential in how the internet was designed. Sort of West Coast libertarianism. And I've spoken to many of them. And the biggest thing that's happened over the last five years are the revelations by Edward Snowden. Now, as a result of what Edward Snowden revealed, the whole of this sort of crypto-anarchist movement has been turbocharged. And they always say the same thing. Individual liberty is the most important. You don't get Silk Road, buy and sell drugs, whatever, but this is about individual liberty. It's about individuals being able to transact with people around the world. This is about freedom. The drugs markets are a really good example of that, but there's so many other ways that could manifest itself. And since Edward Snowden, there has been this explosion of sort of citizen-led efforts to create and share for free more and more systems of encryption, more and more ways that individual citizens can evade government surveillance. And they always say the following, man-made laws can't guarantee your liberty. Man-made laws change, you never know, and it's unpredictable, and the courts are rubbish, or whatever. What can guarantee your liberty is mathematics, physics. Those laws are unbending, they're unchanging. And the mathematics of encryption, the ability to browse the internet anonymously, the ability to send messages that can't be cracked by spies, this will guarantee your liberty. And those systems, they're amazing for journalists. They're amazing for dissidents. On the dark net, it's over there. I didn't really look into this side of it so much, but the same people that use the Silk Road are, of course, but the people that use the Silk Road are selling drugs, but there are other people using the same systems who are journalists in Syria, who are democratic dissidents in Russia, who are, who, we might worry about drugs, they're worried about getting killed by 
security services in their country. What is also great with this book is the honesty with which Jamie talks about his desensitisation with working in the darknet. When he's first on the anorexia sites, he's sickened and can't believe that people are not distraught um, at the photos that are being posted there. But by a couple of days, he's hardened. And he talks about really feeling that he's losing his moral compass. Mm. Something reinforced by another strand in the book about being three clicks away from pornography that can land you in prison. He really uses the darknet as a way to shine a light on things we need to think about as a society and soon. So thanks, Jamie. So we're at the end of our second Transmission Prize 2015 podcast, and you've heard from Charles Fernihow, Margaret Heffernan and Jamie Bartlett. And we still don't know the winner, but we'll be finding out on the 12th of February at Foyle's Bookshop, and you can buy a ticket at salon-london.com. <laughs>